0: Explain myself. Yeah. Yeah. You me
1: greatest leaders welcome to a new episode and today i have the honor to speak to one of the army's phenom- most phenomenal leaders in the past in the past couple years um he's recently retired all the way from washington uh Sir major the ball is yours you can go ahead and introduce yourself to the, to the listeners
0: hey thanks brother so uh to all the listeners out there uh it's an honor for me to be here on uh You know, this uh, podcast, World's Greatest Leaders. And uh, so my name is uh, John Wayne Troxell. I spent 20 years as a command sergeant major in the Army, and I spent 37 years, 10 months, 29 days on active duty. And I retired with a new rank and new title as the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, I'm going to show you the rank right there so you can see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so you see it's, it's, it, it's uh, an eagle, the Department of Defense eagle with four stars in it. So 10 days before I retired, General Milley pinned that on me. But uh, I spent 38 years in the military. I enlisted as a, a reconnaissance specialist. Majority of my time was in the 82nd Airborne Division, but I served all over the world. I served in the 10th Mountain Division as a squadron sergeant major. Striker Brigade, Sergeant Major, out here at Joint Base Lewis-McCord, and in Iraq during the surge. And I've also served as the Armor Center Command Sergeant Major and uh, the First Corps Command Sergeant Major out here and in Afghanistan and uh, U.S. Forces Korea, and then culminating as uh, the CAF for my last four years in Washington D.C. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I'm married to my wife, uh, 36 plus years i've got three kids and four grandkids and uh what i do today is i own my own consulting company and i'm consulting for seven different organizations i also serve on three boards and uh i just continue to want to assist uh, our military members their families veterans our wounded ill and injured and gold star families
1: mm-hmm. so let's let's kick it back to all the all the way back 37 years ago is when you first enlisted right Cause everybody, yeah. when they enlist, they have that one call, like a, like a movie, for example, or like a family is military. Like what joined you to like, what pulled you to enlist in the, in the military and an army specifically?
0: So I grew up in Davenport, Iowa, um, which is the third largest city in Iowa, but still a little bit of a rural, uh, city, but, um, you know, my, my neighborhood was always pro-military. People were always joining the military. And I would see my friends that were a little bit older than me that would join the Army or the Marine Corps. And uh, they would come back and I saw the confidence they had. I saw the sinewy muscularity they had. And I said, I want something like that. And so, uh, so the, right before I graduated from high school, I enlisted and uh, initially I was just gonna do it for four years and uh and and you know uh see how that went and everything but times change and shortly after i got to my first duty station i met my future wife uh nine months later she uh uh, gave birth to our first son and uh once you have a family and you're doing something that comes kind of easy to you that being a soldier for me uh then i knew i had responsibility but i had something that i Felt was larger than myself, and I can. Com- I chose to stay in the military. Now I want to tell you this is how easy it is to excel in our military.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Before I retired, I only had two jobs in my life. I I worked uh, in high school at McDonald's for thirty days. After thirty days, they told me that I wasn't cutting the mustard, pardon the pun, and they fired <laughs> me. And the military kept me thirty-eight years. Man, tell me it ain't hard to excel in the military.
1: You yeah. Know? It's, it's it's it is pretty easy, but I mean it, it has its challenges. But it, it overall, it's not it's not as hard at all. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you're famous for the whole well, uh, eTool thing, right? Um. I want you to dig a little bit more into that because a lot of because yesterday I was talking to some people, some of my peers, and I was telling them that I was going to interview you today. They're like, dude, that that's the that's the guy that said the story about the e-tool, <laughs> and we're like. I got I got to ask him now. So if you want to dig into that, because I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't know about it. But
0: yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I've always and and here's you know, I'll I'll kind of go off on a tangent right quick and then I'll get after the surrender or die. But if when you're a leader in the United States military and you're someone that sets an example uh, and you provide inspiration, purpose, motivation, direction, and you set an example by what you do every day and your technical and tactical proficiency, pretty soon um, you gain a level of respect from subordinates, peers, and superiors. And at some point, you potentially could have a platform that you speak for many as a leader in the military. And so you have to use that platform to get after the challenges that we may have in our military. And so as the SEAC, I saw this um, as my job one, to gain the pulse of the force for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense and to build synergy amongst myself, the service senior enlisted, like the Sergeant Major of the Army, the Marine Corps and all those other guys, uh, but also to be a platform for the challenges that are going on in our military. And I will tell you that after the first year I was in the CAC position, I started noticing in Washington, D.C., how... Um, We were trying to dumb down the threats to our nation. And what I mean by that, and I'm not going to get political on here at all, but there are some people in Washington, D.C. that will look at something like uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda or any of these terrorist organizations that have a history of attacking and killing Americans, that all of a sudden if we could find ways like giving them jobs, which the majority of foreign terrorist fighters in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, are not there because of poverty. They're there because of radical ideology. And I started seeing that we weren't focusing so much on the threat, and potentially the men and women that we had serving in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, and Libya, and places like that, that were in combat every day, that we were losing uh, the focus of what they were getting after. And so, to the surrender or die thing, so it was a couple of years ago, and I went into Raqqa, Syria. And this is my story, brother, and, and I'm sticking to it. I showed up in Raqqa, Syria, and four days later, ISIS surrendered. Raqqa, okay? So <laughs> every time I go to a bar, that's my story. No, seriously, though. Um, uh, so I go into Raqqa, Syria with some of our most elite special operators. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, talk about who they are right now because I think we all know they – they serve uh, in silence and everything, yep. but I here I was in a, in a on top of a roof in uh, in uh, Raqqa, Syria, and I'm with some of our most elite warfighters, and we were dropping bombs on ISIS in there. Uh, we had mortar fire going on them, attack aviation uh, delivering Hellfire missiles on them. Our Syrian Democratic Force partners, the Kurds, were moving in contact led by special operations uh, advisors. And for the six hours I was there, it was constant just attack, attack, attack. But the minute there was a lull, ISIS had the resiliency to come back and fight. So I'm on the roof of this building, and finally I said, uh, you know, excuse my language, these assholes got two options. They can either surrender or they can die. And uh, and I had I had I'd been having this dialogue with one of our... Uh, Most elite special operators who was a fellow sergeant major and I'll just call him George and George and I were constantly having this dialogue about the professionalism of our force and I kept talking about and he and I had this dialogue about Whether we shoot people whether we drop bombs or in the end if need be, you know beat them to death with an entrenching tool and this was prior to this, you know, and so Here I was, Secretary Jim Mattis was the Secretary of Defense, and he and I would travel together. Oh, so this this was recent. Uh, Yeah, it was like two years ago. And uh, so Mattis and I are in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and we had went went to Tampa, Florida, and Miami and some other areas, and we're talking to troops. And he kept talking about – he used the word annihilate our enemies, not defeat but annihilate. And so as I tried to convey this to young troops, what that meant. I came up, I said, that means that you're going to continue to drop bombs on the enemy, shoot them in the face, or beat them to death with your entrenching tool if need be. So when Mattis first heard that, he said, keep saying that. That's what we need to hear. And so the troops loved it. And then it was never an issue until Christmas Day two years ago. And uh, I'm I'm in Bagram, Afghanistan. I'm on a stage for a USO tour. My boss, General Dunford, the chairman, is up there with me. And Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg is with me mm-hmm. and Flo and I have an entrenching each have an entrenching tool in our hands and I'm getting the troops fired up and this was all to inspire the troops getting them to get fired up about getting after the enemy protecting the population building our partner forces and everything well there just happened to be a reporter in the audience and I won't say what news media was from but um, you know it <laughs> you can imagine so this person came up to me after i had said you know hey we're surrender or die and everything and he said hey you're advocating for war crimes for our troops and i said no i'm not and you you know as well brother we train soldiers how to use non-standard methods to defeat an enemy threat well anyways this guy decides to he's going to go viral with it so i reached out to my public affairs guy and uh, and I'll say his name, Master Sergeant Rob Couture, uh, and and uh, Couture tells me, let's beat him to the punch. So uh, he, we took to social media with a picture with me holding an entrenching tool. And we, you know, the quote that I had been saying, he put it on there and it went viral. I mean, it went all over the world to the point that ISIS was talking smack about me on their French propaganda webpage. So what did we do? We started talking smack to them you know and i was getting messages of encouragement from around the world from leaders that were in places like yemen or somalia from leaders from all services and even our international partners but the the thing that bothered me about this whole thing was in washington dc i caught a lot of flack for saying this not from the administration and not from secretary mattis or general dunford but from people that thought that what is this enlisted guy uh, doing, thinking that he's addressing foreign policy. And I wasn't doing that at all. I was doing what you and I are expected to do. That's fire up the troops, get them ready for battle and tell them that we got their back and everything. So that's what it was all about. And now the entrenching tool has become, you know, something of a, an icon in, So today, I've signed over 800 of these entrenching tools, and people continue to send them to me. My point in all of this is, here I was trying to inspire the troops and let them know that we hadn't forgotten how tough the fight was still, even after 19 years of a global war on terrorism, and that we in Washington, D.C., the senior leadership had their back. That's how it all came about, and now, you know, the entrenching tool, like I said, is an icon for weaponry, man.
1: I mean the person that try to try to like throw you under the bus, I think they you just had nothing better to do. Had nothing better to do and that's literally what it is. And they just wanna somehow, some way they they wanna put their name out there. So they wanna do some some dirty stuff like that. Right.
0: Well and I will tell you, and here's another thing in our profession. In, you know like I see what you're doing right now with this podcast and I applaud you. My my hat's off to you. Because you have a platform now, and you are going to reach service members. But there's going to be people out there, especially uh, in the enlisted ranks, in the NCO ranks, that are going to see what you do, you're do, you doing and think that, oh, this guy thinks he's special or something. I call it professional jealousy, and the people that practice professional jealousy, I coined the phrase professional gelots, meaning that they look at you, they're a 60 percenter. And they're, every day, they just expect their troops to come to work and everything. And you have this vision, and you have this platform, and you're getting after it. And so that's what happened to me. I, I was, a, you know, people started uh, practicing professional jealousy against me. And those kinds of people will go to no ends to try and do you harm, both professionally and personally. And, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, it happened to me.
1: I think it's because they one they have nothing better to do and two, like yeah they kind of like don't have the balls to do to like put themselves out there and
0: yeah
1: I, I mean, I'm not doing the I don't do a podcast because I think I'm special I do it cuz I like meeting people like you that have a story to tell right Absolutely Yeah so <clears throat> a topic that I really want to talk about I'm going I'm gonna, I'm going to get there but I want to kind of talk about your background in in the army like yeah. cuz this whole time when you, I, I thought you, I thought you were a, a scout for this whole time. I just, I want to know like, what's your relation to what your job was you, when you're enlisted to, to like, to the cow scout.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, I enlisted as a 19 Delta Cavalry scout. And, uh, you know, I, I, came in and I went to, uh, Fort bliss, Texas. The third armored Cavalry regiment was the first unit I had, and they were based at Fort bliss at the time. And, uh, I got in there, and I was – and this is by no means. I'm not passing judgment on any heavy mech kind of person, okay? God bless them. We have to have our, our mechanized forces and our, our tanks and everything. But when I got in there, I was hoping to be this guy that was going to be sitting on the side of a mountain collecting information on the enemy and everything. And pretty soon I'm riding around in the back of 113s and <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. And, and it would just so – I was, uh, and then plus when I first got assigned to my unit, I got assigned. A I didn't get assigned to a cavalry troop. I got assigned to the headquarters troop in the S three shop. And any private working in a staff shop, it life sucks.
1: Yeah, but anyways, yeah, to the going,
0: so so one day I'm sitting there doing whatever menial task I was expected to do in that S three shop and we were running a range that there were some 82nd airborne division paratroopers a, a couple of rifle companies from the 82nd were training and this nco and officer came in and the officer came in and was talking about the range the nco wouldn't enter the building though he wouldn't enter the s3 building he was standing outside at a uh, relaxed position of parade rest and he had his maroon beret on you know and he was a sergeant first class master wings and everything and. So me, just, I went out and I said, hey, Sergeant, you, you can come in the building if you want. And he goes, no, thank you. I said, you sure? And he says, and dude, I swear I swear to you, he says, I do not associate with nasty legs. <laughs> <said>. <laughs> and uh, you know what I'm talking about, yeah, okay?
1: And, yeah.
0: and I, I thought, this man is so proud to be a paratrooper that, he does not want to come in and associate with people like me. I knew then I wanted to be a paratrooper and I wanted to have some of that, not that, but that professional confidence, not arrogance, but professional confidence. And so I put in a 4187 and uh, went to jump school and it took me a couple of years, but I got to the 82nd and then I ended up spending 13 years there. So, and then I started doing the things that I joined the military to do part of this division ready force one, uh, parachuting out of airplanes and doing airfield seizures and doing the things that I really enjoyed doing and it paid off, you know, with a uh, combat jump in Operation Just Cause and then being one of the first ones on the ground in Saudi Arabia for Desert Shield Desert Storm, you know, so uh, and then as my role evolved as a scout, I actually went back to the heavy mech land and, uh, and I was able to see the world and see the battlefield better. Because I had now had that mix of heavy com conflict or heavy combat training, light and airborne kind of stuff. And it eventually assisted me as I became a light leader as a sergeant major in the tenth mountain division and then as a striker brigade sergeant major. So uh, no regrets. I absolutely everything I did as a cavalry scout built me into the leader that I was.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, that that's cool because you just kind of like just building that knowledge kind of like making yourself more of an asset than to like just gaining that knowledge of being a heavy heavy scout than being a paratrooper it's a whole i mean i I never been to a to a leg unit i'm on my way in a couple in a couple of days but it's i think i hear people talking about all the time it's a lot different than what we do in like an airborne reconnaissance uh unit yeah but it's yeah. interesting um probably one of the hottest topics right now. Right. Uh, probably first class Vanessa Gielen, right. It's, 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 it kind of embarrasses, uh, me to be, to be an NCO in, in the army and seeing that other NCOs and other leaders letting some stuff like this happen. But like, I want to hear what's your intake on everything that's going on.
0: Okay. So, uh, I'm not going to speak specifically on that case. I, I I made a post on Facebook that kind of went viral and, uh, I had to come back because I was kind of talking about uh, sexual harassment uh, from NCOs, that, uh, and and then you know what happened to her in terms of losing her life, and it kind of confused people a little bit. But here's what I would say: that we as non-commissioned officers, and I'll even you know non-commissioned officers across the military and petty officers in our Navy, <clears throat> and and I'll reiterate what I said in that post. We are absolutely the backbone of our United States military. And I saw that time in and time out for the four years as a SEAC, and I traveled around the world, and I saw our NCOs in action in combat, or I saw our NCOs in action in developing other militaries, or I saw our petty officers in action aboard ships and doing freedom of navigation operations or whatever it was. And our NCO and petty officer corps is absolutely – The greatest competitive advantage we have over any threat, whether it's a near-peer kind of threat or terrorism or whatever, don't get me wrong, our ability to fight on the ground, air, and uh, sea, as well as cyber and space and the nuclear domain are important. But what's going to win the day in any long-term or, excuse me, uh, high-end conflict is going to be our mid-level leaders that can exercise discipline initiative within commander's intent apply agile and adaptive thinking and accomplish the mission without being uh, micromanaged or supervised and that's our non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps so we are absolutely the best at what we do but when i see things like uh privates being sexually harassed by non-commissioned officers or i see um And I saw this a lot. You know, one of the things I was focused on was sexual harassment, sexual assault as the SEA Act. And I saw this across the services. And too many times, it was a leader doing it to the person that they were expected to lead. And so this is a, the the Vanessa Guillen case is an absolute tragedy, but uh, we got to get after um, how we're treating the men and women, our reception, our integration, of uh young privates as they come in and how we nurture protect care and train for them and one thing i'll say and i said this in the follow-up message on social media we as non-commissioned officers and petty officers and i'm not trying to take away from the responsibility of officers they absolutely have a great responsibility but the bottom line is the ncos are in the barracks every day the ncos are with the troops every day and every day As a non-commissioned officer, we have to observe and analyze the men and women within our formations. And that means we got to be where they're at. That means we got to be at training with them. We got to endure in the hardships and combat with them. We got to be in their barracks and their living spaces. We got to do periodic checks of them if they're living off post with a family or whatever. But the bottom line is: if we're not observing or analyzing, then there is potential that things could happen. That will cause a, a young trooper to either be sexually harassed or assaulted, or worse yet, end up in a something happening where they end up losing their lives. I think the more we focus as a collective group of NCOs and petty officers on doing that, observing and analyzing and being involved every day, we will be able to get after and make a dent into the sexual harassment and sexual assault that is happening across our military.
1: Yeah. It it is a it is a tragedy. You 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 spoke at the best. I I have like no comments on it, but I do think that she was failed. Like her 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 leadership definitely did her did her wrong, and it's absolutely unacceptable. And it, it's it kind of sucks to see something like that happen because civilians when they see that stuff, when they see a soldier, the first thing they think is professionalism, leadership, fitness, and then now all this stuff comes out and it gives a bad picture to everybody else. Now. They see a soldier; they're going to see uh, sexual harasser or or stuff like that. It's it's yeah, it kind of sucks.
0: And 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 you know what you won't hear about? Let me go back to Raqqa, Syria, two years ago in 2018 when the surrender or die thing happened. What you nobody will talk about, and what they can't talk about, the person in charge of that operation to defeat the geographical caliphate of ISIS on the ground. The person in charge wasn't a general wasn't a colonel, wasn't even an officer. It was a sergeant major that was leading the fight there. His commander was about an hour back at another base preparing for future operations. And so when I got on the ground, of course this guy has no rank on or anything. He doesn't, uh, you know, but I knew he was an NCO because he was dropping plenty of F-bombs, all right? And I was like, <laughs> Yeah. you don't see too many West Pointers doing shit like that. And so... And I thought to myself, and then who was his counterpart on the ground? It was a free female Kurdish brigadier general that was leading the Syrian Democratic Forces. So you've got an enlisted man from the United States military uh, partnering with a female Kurdish brigadier general unknown of in the Middle East, and, and you know that. You, you know, these two together, and I thought to myself, this is what it's all about right here in terms of the United States military assisting these other forces and getting after it. So not one news outlet will tell you that there was an enlisted guy leading the fight for the fall of Raqqa. But that's why we're our greatest competitive advantage right there. And you just said it. What gets the press? When something bad happens. You know, it always, 99 great things could go on. But if one bad thing goes on, the one bad thing gets all the press.
1: Yeah. Well, let's, let's move on from, from that. But yeah. uh, what, do you, what do you think from your time as, as a SEAC, what do you think was the most rewarding part of, of being in that position? And if you want to go a little bit more in depth, of what do you do as a SEAC?
0: Yeah. So a um, couple things. So first of all, uh, it's tough because a lot of people don't know that there's a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I, Most people in there, sir. No, go
1: ahead. I'm I honestly, honestly, I didn't know until I was studying to the promotion board. I was studying <laughs> through, to the promotion board, and my platoon I was like, you need to know this exact order. And I'm like, damn. Uh, and then I memorized it, and then I, I saw your name there because you were at, you it at the time. And then I went over yeah. there to the, our little initial support channel and chain of command pictures, and I see you, and I'm like, oh, that's who, that's who he is. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is the person that synchronizes all of the chiefs of staff. So the chief of staff of the Army, Commandant of the Marine Corps, Chief of Naval Operations, uh, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, all of the services, Commandant of the Coast Guard, all of them together. The chairman is above them, and the chairman is the principal military advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States, which is why you've seen uh, pictures of President Trump with General Milley because General Milley is his principal uniform military advisor. And on the enlisted side, each service has their their senior enlisted, like the sergeant major of the Army and uh, all the others. And the CAC is the enlisted role of the chairman. So my job was to synchronize the efforts of the service uh, senior enlisted. So a lot of people were like, well, the highest-ranking Army guy is the sergeant major of the Army. Well— not if an army guy is the CAC, you yeah. know the CAC is the, and so not, a lot of people didn't know that, which is why I wanted to make sure you know you guys saw what the CAC rank was. But the other thing is, the chairman and secretary of defense don't didn't have until two thousand five. They did not have that sergeant major, that senior enlisted leader, that could do the, give them the things firsthand that every other commander and every other service chief was getting. And that's the pulse of the men and women of the force. And so I focus not only on the Army, but the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, the National Guard Bureau, all of the reserve forces. So think of this. If I told you you could have a job for four years, the key thing I need you to do is travel around the world, visit the troops, deliver the message from the chairman and secretary of defense— Deliver the national military and national defense strategy and what it means to them at the tactical level and then gain feedback from the troops. I mean, that's a pretty good gig, you know, when you can go anywhere in the world you want that has U.S. troops and uh, and you can go visit them. And, you know, so I've been on submarines. I've been on aircraft carriers. I've done F-16 flights I've certain, you know, I don't know why, but the Marines always want me to do PT with them, you know. But, um, <laughs> but the bottom line is I spent four years, 280 days out of the year, traveling around the world to gain that pulse of the force for the chairman, the SECDF, but also for members of Congress, for the National Security Council, and the administration. And I used to use a hashtag on social media called the best job I ever had, and it absolutely was because Secretary Mattis wanted to know what's going on in Somalia. Guess what? John Wayne Troxell gets on a plane and heads to Somalia to find out what's going on. That's not there to circumvent any chain of command, but as Secretary Mattis used to call me, hey, you're my 10,000 mile screwdriver. If I need to adjust something, I send you there and we make an adjustment, you know? So uh, my main purpose was traveling around the world, but building syn- uh, synchronization between the service senior enlisted and the combatant command senior enlisted. There's 11 combatant commands that are the warfighting commands for the United States military around the world. And I used to call them the top 20, the senior 20 enlisted leaders in the DOD. And uh, and then if called to, I would testify before Congress, I would meet with administration members, or I would meet with members of the National Security Council. So uh, all of it was gained to make sure that every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, and Coast Guardsman had a voice in the Pentagon and across on Capitol Hill, and uh, in the White House complex.
1: But for you to get that for you to get that job, were you like hand picked? You had to apply, like how'd you get that?
0: No, it's like any other process, uh, there's a nomination process. So in order to be the CAC, you had to be serving at a four-star level. Uh, so you could be one of the, so it could be one of the service senior enlisted that could compete for it, or one of the combatant command or subunified combatant command senior enlisted leaders. So I was at US Forces Korea when the job came open and I asked at the time, Sergeant major of the army daily, I said, Hey, I'd like to compete to be the SEAC. And he absolutely endorsed me. And, uh, and so I was among 10 that competed. I was one of three that was interviewed and, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, and, and gratefully, uh, general Dunford, Marine Corps general Dunford selected me on, uh, uh, 15 November 2015 as the CAC. So you had to be operating at a four-star level and either be a senior enlisted leader or in a joint command. Mm-hmm. Because when you become the CAC, even if you're wearing an army uniform, you're not the sergeant major of the army. You are the senior enlisted leader that's over all the services. So you had to be comfortable <clears throat> for me I had you know I I've spoken to 5,000 sailors on an aircraft carrier you know, theaters full of, of airmen or Marines or whatever, and been on Coast Guard cutters talking to Coastie. So you have to be able to speak this joint language to be the SEAC, even though you wear one services uniform.
1: And how, how are you addressed? Because in the Army, you'd be addressed as Sergeant Major. How do they address you? As Sergeant Major or?
0: SEAC. No, SEAC. Again, as a leader, you know, excuse my language, as a leader, as long as people aren't calling you an asshole to your face, then you shouldn't really get caught up in what they're addressing you as. You know, the Air Force would call me, sir, because, you know, uh, they they do that with their enlisted ranks. And you know the Army, you know, uh, don't call me, sir, I work for a living yep. or something like that. <laughs> but the normal title of the SEAC the t- is that, SEAC, Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman, uh, pronounced SEAC. So the current SEAC, CZ Colon Lopez, good friend of mine, Air Force, He's not a chief master sergeant in the Air Force anymore. He is the CAC, and he wears the Air Force version of this rank. So people would call me CAC. People would still call me Sergeant Major. People would call me Sir. <clears throat> as long as they weren't calling me an asshole or calling me late for the chow, then I was good to go. You know, I, I just knew that people were being respectful, but they didn't truly understand. And so part of what I did was educate them on who the CAC was and what I did.
1: Mm-hmm. And when, especially when you hit that, that senior enlisted rank, right? What are some challenges that you faced? Because you have, you have a, as a senior enlisted, especially as Sergeant Major, you have a lot of impact on a lot of people without, without doing much, right? Yeah. What are, what are some challenges that you faced with there? Because decisions that you make can affect like the life of other soldiers or in your case, the rest of the army.
0: Well, <clears throat> as a leader, you always have to be cognizant of what's coming out of your mouth. And if you're feeling strongly about something, and it's legal, moral, and ethical, and it's something that you as a leader, in your experience, know that there needs to be something said about it, then you, you can't be afraid to have the intestinal fortitude to say something, but more importantly, how you say it. There's got to be some tact involved in when you say it. But when you're really trying to get a message out, you know, like surrender or die, sometimes the language, albeit that it is still uh, moral and ethical, sometimes it has to be in people's faces, like telling the enemy that, you know, we'll beat them to death with our entrenching tools if we have to. And we'll sleep like babies at night because we are removing this hideous threat, uh, not not only to United States military, but to the free world. Uh, and the citizens around the world so sometimes that language has to be in people's faces but the number one thing that i've had to fight as an enlisted leader is and even as the CIA, act uh, when i came into the pentagon i immediately saw that there were people um, <clears throat> that thought that my job was to make sure police call was done in the pentagon grounds or you know that I should be doing a trooper of the month board or something as the most strategic enlisted leader. What I call that is marginalization. You know, and and I'm not don't get me wrong, I'm not an officer basher. I love all the officers that I've ever worked with and the commanders that I've had and the bosses, but sometimes officers think that our job is police call and making sure the troops are getting to first formation and things like that when in reality <clears throat> We are much more than that. So fighting that marginalization that can come with being a senior enlisted leader. And I refused to let anybody put me into a box that uh, kind of uh, um, took away from what I was there to do. And so sometimes I would speak up about that in harsh language um, that was bordering on insubordination. But the bottom line is, as an enlisted leader— sometimes you've got to say things that people won't want to hear to make sure that people realize that you are a battlefield enabler to any commander out there so that's the one thing the other thing i will tell you along the same lines that it's not what i've had to endure but what i've seen out there is senior enlisted that practice self-marginalization meaning they don't want responsibility they don't want accountability so they will find some kind of niche like checking records for promotion boards or checking NCOER. Don't get me wrong. That's important, and that's part of what we do as NCOs and petty officers. But the bottom line is if a command is going this way and the commander is leading them this way and the senior enlisted leader, the sergeant major, thinks, well, I think this is the way we ought to go, the entire organization is going to go this way, he's going to go that way, and he has self-marginalized himself or herself and Chances are he's going to be irrelevant to what's going on in the command and to the troops in the command so The number one thing I've had to deal with is marginalization in my number one piece of advice To enlisted leaders is don't be marginalized, but worse yet Don't self-marginalize
1: mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned on a, on a subject that I want to talk about is the whole officer and NCO relationship, right? It's important because if, if we can't meet their intent And They're not helping us out meet their intent. It kind of goes wrong But what's your take on the whole officer and into relationship and how you think it it should be It should be going?
0: It's an absolutely imperative to our lethality and readiness and preparedness of our force Um, The bottom line uh, in order for us to be the most efficient military um, We can be we need organizations that are officer led but NCO and Petty Officer ran, and what we do is, and I talked about it earlier, the commanders provide vision, the commanders provide their commander's intent, they provide priorities to the organization, and as the senior most person enlisted of that organization, we take that vision, that intent, and those priorities. We develop focus areas for the lanes that we are responsible for, and that's the men and women within the organization, and we get out and get after it. And so it's it, like I said, it's an absolute must that we have officer and NCO relationships and they've got to be mutually supporting in what we do. I will tell you, um, when I was a striker brigade sergeant major for 45 months, my commander was a guy, Brigadier General now retired, John Lair. And John Lair and I were like brothers together as we trained up and as we fought for 15 months in combat. We were either always together, or when we were apart, it was me armed with his vision, his priorities, his intent, getting at the focus areas I needed, and then we would come back together and, uh, you know, share what was going on in the organization, and and I will tell you, that was probably the best officer-NCO relationship I had until 45 months working for marine general joe dunford as as the chairman but as i said before it's an imperative and the bottom line is the officers command the officers have the authority we get responsibility from those officers to get out and get after what their focus and their priorities are and we can never confuse what our role is as enlisted with what officers is and two, never try to be officers. That's not what we are, OK? We're going to educate our NCOs that we can be better advisors, whether through military or civilian education uh, to officers, but we are not there to replace them. We can we can move up if it has to be if if an officer is killed in action or something, but that's not what we're there to do. So I think it's an imperative and we can't look beyond that. The officer and NCO uh, relationship.
1: Besides that, that solid relationship between officers and NCOs, what do you think, when it comes more to the junior level, like the junior enlisted level, what do you think they they need to do that is important to create a solid base to any organization?
0: So um, the center of gravity in any organization, let's say the platoon, let's let's say for the sake of argument, an infantry platoon, the center of gravity in that platoon is the E1 to E4 population. Uh, because those guys are the grenadiers, they're the saw gunners, they're the riflemen, they're the machine gunners. They're the ones that are doing the heavy lifting. The key leadership tools are the team leader, squad leaders, platoon sergeant, and platoon leader. So the relationship between a platoon leader and the platoon sergeant is, as I described earlier, the relationship between the officer, the platoon leader, and the troops is they got to be able to listen to them. They got to be able to go down to their level and say, Hey, what's going on here and everything. Because again, they are the center of gravity. I think it's absolutely a must. And this is my opinion. And, uh, and some will disagree with me. There is NCO business, but that should only come, uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, tasks that are, uh, troops are normally doing, whether that's, you know, uh, the barracks, uh, maintenance or whatever is like that. If it has to do with the lethality and readiness or the, of the organization, it has to be leader business and the officer of that organization has to be involved. The bottom line, the officer provides the vision and the direction that the organization is going to go, whether it's at the lowest levels to the highest levels. And we, we can't forget that. So I don't care whether it's at the lowest tactical level at the operational level, at the highest strategic level, there has to be that bond between the officers and enlisted in order for us to maximize our potential and efficiency as an organization and institution. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the the E one three four they are the go getters, right? They're all the heavy lifters, and I mean, I wish I could be I could be a, a two four a machine gunner for, for my entire career, because, but it's it gets to a point that you gotta you gotta you got to teach the, the the younger guys or the younger girls, girls, well, how to do it and kind of like just show them the right direction. But speaking of junior leaders, what do you think, what is some good advice that you can give to them in order for them to like be successful or at least them the, those junior soldiers that have a lot of leadership potential but they're not quite there yet?
0: So, before I talk to, about leaders at the junior level, let's talk about The professional influencers at the junior level and some people call it the spec 4 mafia or you know whatever but let's talk about the influencers outside of the normal duty hours and who they are and that's uh you know those senior e4s uh that the young privates are looking at to get advice and and direction and everything and too many times we discount these professional influencers. So the bottom line, it, it, when it, if there's a professional influencer out there that's a, an E4 or someone like that, not necessarily in the NCO support channel, you've got a responsibility to make sure that young privates are understanding everything about the organization and not filling them full of uh, barracks lawyer BS, that you're kind of directing them and helping them. The minute you pin on NCO stripes, I don't care if you're a corporal, you're a sergeant or whatever, life as you know it is over. You know, you are no longer one of the guys or gals that's running with the team on Friday nights out, uh, you know, playing beer bottle hockey or whatever people do on the weekend, you know. And that's your smile and tells me you can identify with that as a young troop, brother. (laughs) But but, uh, you now have responsibility to lead to motivate, to provide purpose, to provide direction. And we cannot take that for granted. I hear it all the time from people, oh, he's just a young sergeant. Uh, we don't want to give him responsibility. Then what the hell did you make him a sergeant for? Exactly. You know? you know, I mean, we empower non-commissioned officers. Our NCO creed applies to every corporal up to the Act, you know? And if, it, if we are going to put a premium on what the NCO creed is on a corporal or a sergeant, then why are we making them these NCO ranks? My point is this, whenever I go anywhere or have went anywhere as the CAC or as a command sergeant major or whatever it was, if I saw a sergeant or a corporal on the ground, I immediately identified them as a leader and said, tell me what's going on in your organization. Tell me what uh, you're doing today and how you're leading and everything. And if they kind of gave me the loser salute, Then I knew they weren't empowered, and I knew that uh, they were being marginalized. Back to that marginalization thing. So my point is this. um, Our NCOs have been trained, they've been educated, and they've been certified through an an NCO board process or whatever, uh, so we can trust them. And if we trust them, then we can empower them. Uh, But the bottom line is if we don't trust them, then we can't empower them. And if we don't trust them, why did we make them NCOs to begin with? So my message at the lowest level is you have a responsibility for every man or woman within your span of control. And they aren't your buddies. They are your troops. And mom and dad America expects a Sergeant E5 or a corporal to nurture, uh, protect, train, and develop their young man or woman, just like the same expectation is for the CAC. And so, my message to the young NCOs is: never take uh, what your responsibilities are lightly, and take charge. You're you're expected to be in charge. Take charge.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, how how important? Because I, when I when I first find out who was a CAC, and I went to the board and I saw the picture, I noticed I was like, damn, he has a lot of ribbons. He's a master rated jump master, and and all that stuff is first impressions, right? Without me knowing you as a person, I can really tell that you're, you're a squared away person just because of what you look like in uniform. What, 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 are, what are some things, like, do you think that first impressions matter when it comes to being a leader and stuff like that?
0: Absolutely. I absolutely think first impressions are important. But here's, you know, all the stuff, all that fruit salad that we wear on our uniforms and those uh, combat and special skill badges – They are a reflection of what we've done. They are not a reflection of what we're doing. And so the worst thing that can happen to a leader is they get lost in their own museum. And, you know, when I see folks, you know, and I'll just say it, I see somebody that's wearing a Ranger tab and they look like they're grossly overweight. A Ranger tab says that at one point you had the physical, mental, and emotional, and technical and tactical attributes to graduate from one of these most uh, uh, hardest leadership schools we have. But now that you're wearing a ranger tab and you look like you weigh 300 pounds, you're lost in your museum and you are probably irrelevant. First impressions have to be about as a leader, how much do you care? How much inspiration and charisma are you providing? And, uh, And are you backing up all of those things that are on your uniform? The first thing the troops will see is what's on your uniform, but that shouldn't be the lasting thing they see It ought to be how good of a speaker. Are you? How good of a listener? Are you? How much do you genuinely care? And are you someone that is a leader of action a leader of consequence a leader of discipline and a leader of uh, Inspiration
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important but like you said you can't get lost in your regime. Once you like, That's once, you right. get, once you get that tab, once you get that master rated jump master, you need to keep upholding the same standard that you would even if you didn't have those things, like if you still wanted to get it. Um,
0: yeah, and, and if I could add on that, so think of this. Any, as a paratrooper, you see a master rated parachutist and you automatically think, and he's, he or she is doing jump master duties. That's who I want to JMPI me. And then all of a sudden they come up and they just kind of, you're good yeah and they don't do a a jump master personnel inspection to the standard guess what you just lost confidence in not only that person that's wearing that badge or anybody else that might be wearing that badge so the master parachutist badge says something that yes you're qualified as a jump master you're qualified as a master parachutist but in the end if you are not every day Showing that you are truly worthy of that badge you have on then again, you're lost in your own museum and you're Potentially irrelevant and in some cases and as a jump master you could be unsafe and dangerous.
1: Yeah 100% 100% agree with you, but if we go back to that whole officer and NCO relationship thing What is the way that you think that that the officers can maximize the talents of the NCOs on their team on the platoon on their company slash troop and, and so on and so forth.
0: So how many times have you heard, how many times have you asked a lieutenant or an officer, sir, what do we need to do? Or ma'am, what do we need to do? Uh, what you're asking <laughs> is, what is your vision? And what direction do you see us going? And let's say, again, let's use that for sake of an argument. It's an infantry platoon. And, and he says, sir, what are we going to do? Uh, and the platoon sergeant may ask. Uh, and the platoon leader says, um, we are going to set up an ambush uh, position tonight uh, to uh, defeat this threat. In the NCOs, so the platoon sergeant ought to be saying, okay, I need a squad on one side of the ambush point. I need another squad. I, I got. I need a squad in reserve. I need the machine guns to be placed in a great support-by-fire position to execute this mission. That is what ought to be going through his head. And the officer, by providing vision and, you know, basically task purpose and why they ought to stand back and let the non-commissioned officers execute that mission and supervise and refine where they see fit i don't know how many times i see an officer walking a squad leader over and saying here's where you need to put your position right here here's your lane to fire and then walking around and doing the nco test and i'm like lieutenant you know, excuse my language, get back to your command post, have a healthy cup of shut the F up and let your <laughs> NCOs run it. If you trust them, let them go and execute the setup of the plan, come back and back brief you and then execute. Too many times officers want to give task, purpose, method on how to do it, the end state, and uh, and, and they never give the why and they never empower and in the end, when you have organizations like that, you know as an NCO, oh, shit, if you're going to do my job for you, all right, I'm just going to step aside and let you do it. And, and, and in the end, the troops are going to be like, why is this lieutenant coming down there telling me how to employ my machine gun? when well, I'm the machine gunner. I'm the SME for this damn thing, you know? So um, I, I just think officers have to stay in their lane. Again, leader business. They're, they never lose responsibility to get out and supervise, refine, and check. But if you say we're going to set in an ambush, platoon sergeant, you know how what our standard operating procedures are. Let's get after it. Let me know when we're set in and ready. And then come back, supervise, refine, inspect, and and, and check. But don't be out there trying to be uh, corporal or sergeant snuffy trying to you know tell them how to set in their fire team. Stand back and be that leader. And observe and analyze.
1: I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast, because a lot of people that listen to this podcast is is uh, in my unit and they've been in the unit maybe a little bit less than I've been, but they will 100% identify what you're saying right now because it used to be pretty much around like that. Lots of things that we would do would be the officers basically just micromanaging us and not letting NCOs do what they're supposed to be doing. And things started to change. The thing is, Kind of drifting away from that, but yeah, uh, I think a lot of people that listen will definitely uh, identify what you're saying. Um, so, throughout your time, I think it's going to be a pretty hard question because you, you did a lot, a long time in the army. But what was the hardest decision that you made as in a career as a leader?
0: So, okay, I'm gonna, you know, so let's let's go back to uh, that professional jealousy. So there was someone that uh, was in my uh, span of control when I was the CAC. That was an Air Force senior enlisted person. Uh, that was a thirty-year airman, was an E nine, and uh, this person was one of those professional gelots. And again, he was a marginal performer, and I was trying to, uh, you know, build this person uh, to be a peak performer. And you know when you have a marginal performer, and you're trying to provide them guidance and direction
1: they to become defensive. a better leader, they get defensive. They
0: get defensive. And guess what this person did? They weaponized the IG against me, and filed an IG complaint at the highest levels against me. And as the SEAC, I went into, I was suspended for six months, as uh, you know, for pending this investigation. So I sat in a small office. I could not talk to my staff. I could not communicate with the service senior enlisted. I couldn't go into my office. I sat in this little hole of an office in the Pentagon for six months. And so many people reached out to me, one, for the support. I'm telling you, people like the Chief, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, the Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, senior leaders across the globe, four stars, and senior enlisted reached out to give me support. But there was others telling me, why are you putting up with this? Why don't you just retire? And every day I would come home to my wife and I'm sitting in this hole with, uh, you know, a TV and a computer. And I couldn't access my zipper. I couldn't access my top secret account. So really, what could I do all day long? Watch TV and, you know, basically surf the Internet, you know, and prepare for, you know, my IG. Uh, interview and everything but the bottom line I'd come home to my wife every day and even then she would ask me how was your day knowing that I sat in a freaking hole all day doing nothing but my point was this I am NOT gonna bow down because I knew I had done nothing illegal immoral or unethical and I am not gonna allow the person that filed this complaint against me to bring me down after 37 years in the United States military Think of this, Sergeant, I, for 20 years, I was a sergeant major, 20 years, and I didn't change my leadership style from when I was a battalion level sergeant major to when I was the CAC. but all of a sudden at the highest level, three and a half years in the job, somebody is going to come back to me and say that I'm toxic, that I am unprofessional, and that I am doing uh, unethical things and all that. I wasn't going to bow to that kind of pressure, and I endured it for six months. And because I, I knew in the end that this was all going to be BS, this guy this guy leveled 36 complaints against me. Every time I dropped an F bomb, he, he he added that in the complaint. <clears throat> and in the end, when the investigation came out, General Dunford uh, reinstated me, and I was able to finish the last year as the CAC with honor and dignity. So my point was. For that six months, it really tried my professional uh, being a professional stoic, you know, in the face of all this BS going on to me, keeping that professional demeanor and professional face and also uh, that I was not going to tap out and I and just retire and walk on. I was not going to go out that way. So my message to you and all of our other NCOs and petty officers out there. Continue to do you as long as what you're doing is legal, moral and ethical and continue to do things with a vision like your podcast right now. You're not doing this for you. This is your platform to talk to troops, to get troops involved and to spread messages and then talk to people like me, you know. Um, but there will be people that will be jealous of what you're doing or across our NCO and petty officers rank. If you're trying to strive for excellence and go after 90%, the 60 percenters will try to come at you and bring you back down to where they're at. Stay the course, keep doing you, and keep being that inspiration uh, for the men and women of our military that need it from our non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps.
1: Mm-hmm. And we're coming up to our last question. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been an amazing episode. I learned a lot, but the last question is, What is your key to success, right? Like, What what do you, throughout your 37 years in the military, what would you wake up and tell yourself every day that helped you succeed through that day and accomplish everything that you accomplished throughout your career?
0: I gotta be better today than I was yesterday. And at at no time as a leader in the United States military can you rest on your laurels. Because as we spoke about earlier, when you rest on your laurels, chances are you're gonna end up lost in your own museum, and you're going to be irrelevant and if you're irrelevant officers are going to marginalize you okay right. every day you got to look to grow physically mentally emotionally technically and tactically as a leader every day look to learn and grow and be better than you were yesterday even as the cf i'm the senior enlisted guy in the department of defense i can't go any higher in the military but every day if i wasn't looking to grow and develop then I, it was a, a travesty to the troops down below. And it was almost hypocritical to NCOs like you, if I tell you learn and grow and get better every day, and I'm not doing it myself. So the key to my success and the key to success of any leader is be humble enough and have the humility to learn and grow. And sometimes that learning and growth comes from people that you outrank and, uh, and you've got to be humble enough to say, I'm going to learn from this uh, subordinate here. Uh, so, To the leaders out there, learn, grow, and get better every day so that you continue to be relevant and you continue to be part of that greatest competitive advantage our United States military has. And that's our trained, trusted, and empowered non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps.
1: All right. Well, yeah, that was the last question. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I call you CAC or Sergeant Major. I'm, it's kind of weird for me, but
0: CAC is fine.
1: But I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on the the show and just ex- sharing some knowledge to all these listeners. I'm pretty sure they're all going to be stoked whenever they found out that I interviewed you. And hey, uh, yeah. So no, go
0: ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Now you get. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time, and and uh, I wish you the best on retirement. All right. Hey, hey,
0: Sergeant. Thank you. Note this: that even in retirement. I'm not going to come in and tell you how to do your job. I'm not going to tell any sergeant major how to do their job. But if you need me to help you try to get to the goals you're going to get after, uh, the analogy I use is I'm in the on-deck circle with a bat. I'm taking some practice swings. I got a donut on my bat, but I can easily pop that donut off, and I can come in and pinch hit or whatever you need me to do. I look at my me being a retiree, that I'm an asset, to the leaders that are on active duty right now that are trying to get after the hard business of defending our freedom, our homeland, and our way of life. So I'm here for any NCO and petty officer that needs help out there. You can reach out to me. And we're friends on Facebook now, okay? Oh, yeah, you, you, are, believe, you are. Yeah, so any help you need, brother, just reach out to me. And thank you for your leadership and thank you for what you do every day to take care of citizens like me. God bless you, brother.
1: I appreciate it.